let's have a frank conversation about, you want me to say race, don't you? You want me to say race? Practical solutions to criminal justice problems. And so we begin This Week in Common Sense for the third week of June 2020. And you're Paul Jacob, and you're talking about the big stories that appeared this week on thisiscommonsense.org. Well, you know, I'm glad to know that I'm Paul Jacob. I have always wanted to be Paul Jacob, and, and I don't know if people know that, but that's always been my goal. Here I am. Uh, you know, that was from, we, we took that opening from Wednesday's uh, commentary, Unfriending the Police. But we had two this week that really dealt with criminal justice and kind of where we are on that issue as a uh, nation. And the first one was the coming backlash, which was on Monday. And, you know, there's been all this about defunding the police. And, of course, to bleed into Wednesday's commentary, which was unfriending the police, the whole idea of defunding the police is is attractive to me in one key way right off the bat, which is we've got huge government supporting people wanting to defund something. This is, to my knowledge, this is the first time ever on any issue at any time that a lot of people on the left said, let's spend less money. And so I think those of us in the middle, on the right, uh, favoring limited government, ought to take them up on it and say, okay, let's let let's go step two and step three. How do we spend less money? Um, but you know, the interesting thing, and one of the points we made uh, on Monday in the coming backlash was pointing out that if you're defunding the police, if you are <clears throat> not trusting the police to have what is called a monopoly on force, you know, the government, in, in essence, has a monopoly on force and in essence doesn't. Um, they have theoretically this ability to have much bigger force. But the beauty of America, in my humble opinion, is that we as collective individuals have more force, more firepower than our government. That is not true in a lot of countries in this world. The people are in essence disarmed and the authorities have the firepower advantage. In the United States of America, the most beautiful thing is that we, the people, have the firepower advantage because of all the private ownership of, of weapons. And there's been all this push that we need more gun control, the police are the only people who should have weapons, but if you're in the streets saying that you can't trust the police, that the police are killing people, and of course, you know, not all the police, not everywhere, uh, but police are killing people. And, and, not, and not just people of one race, they're killing people all across the board. And, and of course, some of the statistics on, on whether uh, police are more likely to kill black people or white people or Hispanic people or so on and so on, uh, if you look at per capita, well, then they're more likely to kill blacks than whites. Uh, if you start to look at uh, crime statistics and 
go by not the percentage of the population, but the percentage of crimes committed by a certain, you know, people in a certain race, then all of a sudden the, uh, the killings separated by race don't look so out of whack. Um, but, but of course, you know, part of it is, to me, it's not so important that we determine precisely how much racism or not racism is going on. The important thing is that we stop police from killing people they shouldn't be killing, regardless of the race of the person killed or the race of the policeman. Um, but anyway, the uh, you know we we made that point on Monday that basically uh, uh, the idea of gun control is gone. It's out the window because you cannot disarm the populace uh, when even the people favoring gun control say you cannot trust the police. So why would you give them all the weapons in society? It's insane. The other part of Monday's commentary was about a study that is fascinating. And it looked at the riots that happened after Martin Luther King was murdered, assassinated. And, you know, I think that uh, the level of anger and, you know, I mean, I, I think of that, uh, I was eight years old when it happened, um, but I think of the level of just rage in the, the black community and and a lot of, you know, just sadness and, and horror in across the board. But in those riots, and they were widespread. Uh, they then looked at the 1968 election, and I don't know all the you know precise how they did everything in the study, but the bottom line was uh, they said that the race riots that happened after the Martin Luther King assassination reduced the Democratic uh, Party's vote by two percent in counties uh, surrounding where there were problems and, and riots and so on and so on. And, um, you know, it's a very interesting thing because it's easy to look at some of these things and say, well, they're going to get more press because of riots. It's going to make it more of a story. And that may lead to change. And while, you know, we don't support rioting, Maybe in the end, the silver lining is that it led people to change. Well, this is positing that, oh, no, it led people to backlash. And although, you know, maybe maybe the vote for the Democrat or for the Republican was about different issues. But anyway, what, what they're looking at here is this was not helpful to the Democrats. This did not lead people to embrace uh, reform. It led people to step back and say, we've got a big problem with violence. And, um, and what's interesting is that a fellow named David Shore, uh, who is certainly, you know, kind of a, a Democrat, uh, personally uh, favors Democrats over Republicans and so on, decided on Twitter that he would alert people to the study, let them know about this study. Hey, here's something that maybe these these riots and, uh, you know, if, if the protests lead to riots, maybe that's not so good for us. Now, he didn't go into deep, you know, uh, analysis. He just posted it and gave people the information. 
He lost his job. He lost his job for posting truthful information, a study on Twitter because there was a backlash that people didn't like the information. They didn't argue what he's saying is a lie because he wasn't, he was simply, here's the, here's the study. He wasn't, he wasn't verifying this study as gospel truth. He was merely providing the study, but people didn't want to hear it and were angry at having to hear truthful information they don't like. And so he had to go. And uh, that takes all of this to a different level. It's not just a matter of, you know, in some cases, whether you think a riot is a good thing or a bad thing, uh, but it's literally that if you have an opinion about it or even cite truths that are not helpful to somebody else's narrative, you may lose your job. And that, uh, you know, that's a whole different, uh, uh, that's a whole different level of dysfunction when you can't even discuss things. It's, it, it's reminiscent to me of the Cultural Revolution in China. And so much, really since Trump getting elected and right after he was elected, you had the Berkeley uh, situation. Wasn't that right after he got elected or was that right before? I think it was right after. Um, but you've had all these situations where America looks like, in our universities, looks like the Cultural Revolution, that everybody has to be you know, pilloried because they didn't say something just right, or they're part of some privileged class or what have you. This is a recipe um, for disaster. And it's interesting because it sort of feeds into Tuesday's commentary, a modest extrapolation. And, uh, you know, Tuesday's commentary is really looking at this decision, uh, Neil Gorsuch, who I disagree with here, because I don't think, I, I, don't, I don't read the 64 Civil Rights Act to, when they said sex, I think they meant men and women and not gender uh, or sexual orientation. And so I think I would have ruled differently. And I didn't read all the briefs and so on. And maybe I would have thought differently. It's not my main you know, issue. And I'm, I'm no expert on it. And really, we should only, <laughs> we should only ever listen to experts. Uh, but, yeah, that's, uh, that is the real message of this year. <laughs> <laughs> we should all talk about a unifying laugh. <laughs> the whole country should be laughing in unison <laughs> about that. But anyway, but Gorsuch had the, the position that when they said sex, the text of that to, in today's understanding would include sexual orientation and gender and other issues, and that those then are included. And so I, I disagree with him. I don't fault him as like, cheating and you know somehow he has a different opinion um and he's and i i look at it and i say he's following his view this isn't an aberration where he he wanted to help some crony and some you know insider legal case this is a different uh point of view and so you know it it it, it really does not 
very much diminish my admiration for Gorsuch. I think he's the best judge on the court. Um, but the interesting thing that we raised on Tuesday was we now have protections for race, for religion, uh, for sexual orientation, for sex, for gender, um, at least if you're a protected class, if you're a traditionally discriminated against class. Um, I, I don't believe that there's any protection in the civil, uh, 64 Civil Rights Act if you were to be fired for being a cisgender person, meaning that you, you're biologically a woman and you like men or you're biologically a man and you like women. And, and you know, so you, you don't have any grievance with our society somehow, although I'm, I am cisgendered and I have plenty of grievances, actually. But but anyway. Uh, uh, so those are our issues still in our society, although much less when you think of um, the 64 Civil Rights Act. You have to think back to a time in which businesses could not serve African-Americans in large swaths of the swaths of the country without the fear that their business might be firebombed, that their house, uh, that their family might be attacked. In other words, the, the violence available, and in some cases, like in Mississippi or Alabama, where there's tremendous, uh, you know, obvious evidence that this was not just private violence, it was private public partnership violence to, to impose a racist kind of apartheid uh, in the South. And, and so this was pretty serious stuff. And, and, you know, a lot of libertarians are going to look at the 64 Civil Rights Act and say the government has no power to tell businesses who they have to serve or not serve. I'm very sympathetic to the 64 Civil Rights Act for the very reason that I think, I don't know what else they could do. Um, I think the level of violence that was real and threatened against business owners required some sort of response. And while I don't think that's a, a perfect response by a long shot, I think, I'm, I, think I would have voted for it. Uh, just to create some change, because I think at a, at a certain point you have to deal with reality. Um, and if the theory doesn't get you to a place where <laughs> where people are free and not scared and not bullied and not intimidated into, you know, uh, something less than full fledged freedom, uh, you know, I, I I think that's what you you have to work toward. So all of that being said. Today, the threat of discrimination on all these levels is so much reduced. And today, one of the main threats is against people who say something that's not politically correct. What's his name with the, uh, I'm going to forget his name, uh, so close to the tip of my tongue, but the guy with the Houston Rockets who was in the front office, he wasn't the owner or the, the general manager, but he was, he might've been the general manager. He was somebody with the, with the Houston Rockets. And he tweeted something about stand with Hong Kong and who are fighting for their freedom. 
And of course, China, you know, the the CCP, the bosses, uh, the butchers of Beijing didn't like, they don't like anybody to say anything about Hong Kong or Tiananmen Square. They're very touchy. And, um, and, and so all of a sudden you had this big storm and China canceling things and people like LeBron James saying he didn't know what he was talking about and how outrageous that this person would have a political opinion because that political opinion might cost LeBron some dough coming from China. You know, we have seen this again and again, where in our society at this moment, you are, I think, more threatened in terms of employment over something you say that's not politically correct than over your skin color or over your sexual orientation or over your religion or so on and so on. And so we just raised that. Now, we made very clear uh, that we're not we're not advocating that there be new civil rights legislation saying that you get to say whatever you want and no one can ever fire you for it. What we are suggesting is that having a government that polices all this stuff is never going to be the best way to have a better society where people aren't racist or sexist or where people get along, that you really have to, you have to meet people where they are. You have to be open to other people's opinions and you have to have this back and forth in a, in a society where you don't have the force of government coming in and saying, you will do this, you will do that. You're, you're not, you can't be fired if you say this, but you can be fired if you say that. Um, all of this, we need less government and we need more people weighing in. And it's not a matter of, of uh, you know, one of the ways you fight discrimination is by people power. Someone says, hey, that store discriminated against me. Don't shop there. So I'm not saying to people, oh, oh, you know, your your uh, boycott of a certain store is is bad. I mean, I think at a certain point, some of these boycotts can be overblown. But th that's a great way to enforce a better behavior among businesses, uh, among politicians, for that matter. Uh, boycott them and vote for somebody else if if you have a decent choice. Differences in the marketplace, you almost always have better choices than you do in elections. Uh, and as a, as a golden example of that, this election, you get to choose between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So that's uh, think about any any product you want and you've got better choices than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So the third commentary is uh, unfriending the police. And the reason I wanted this title, because I think you said, what does this title mean? <laughs> you know, was, but it, it, it felt like to me, you know, in, in, in Facebook land, you know, uh, and then one of my favorite little quotes I saw somewhere was that sometimes in real life, you need to unfriend people. And uh, which I, I think is, uh, is true. But in, in the whole Facebook culture, you're going to friend or unfriend somebody and that it's almost gotten to be this um, virtue signaling that I'm against the police or I'm for the police, if you have different you know, virtue sets, um, as if all police are good or all police are bad. Um, and, and that's not 
going to get us there. Uh, it's it, we're, we're not going to have a society where everyone agrees that the police are terrible, so we get rid of all the police. What? How do you defend yourself? Um, and and how do you protect property? People are going to hire private police. And then, of course, who's going to hire the private police? Well, it's going to be the wealthier people who can afford the better police. So, uh, you know, we have to have some sensible uh, look at all this and and not just have kind of knee-jerk bumper sticker, you know, responses. And I, and I also, in this commentary on friending the police, raise some issues that I think are important. And I, I use uh, Radley Balco, who writes for the Washington Post and is, uh, has written some great things. What was his uh, big book? The, uh, the Militarization of Police or something. I, I can't believe I can't pull his, uh, his book. But he, uh, The Warrior Cop, I think, uh, was his big book. But he's done a bunch of stuff. He's been wonderful. Uh, we started writing about Corey May, who was a guy in Mississippi uh, I'm going on a long tangent here, but killing them all. Uh, but a guy in Mississippi who the police used a no-knock raid, came into his house, was the wrong place. They're looking to bust somebody for drugs. It wasn't Corey May. And he doesn't know what to do. They're breaking in the Someone's breaking in his house. He's got his gun. He fires. And he shoots and kills the policeman. And, of course, they do the usual, let's charge him with all kinds of things, including murder. And they convict him of murder, and he is waiting on death row. Now, he did nothing but be awakened in the middle of the night with someone breaking into his home and defend himself. Uh, anyway, Radley Balco made Corey May a cause celeb and uh, alerted people like me, and, and uh, this is commonsense.org. And uh, we did, we must have done seven, ten or more commentaries about what was happening. In the end, they ended up releasing uh, Corey May. And so instead of being killed for uh, self-defense that was totally justified, I mean, it's terrible that a policeman lost his life, but it's not Corey May's fault. Um, and uh, so instead of being executed, is a free man today. So, uh, you know, hats off to uh, Radley Balco and uh, have always been a big fan. And Balco makes the point, which I don't think he, he provides a bunch of evidence and studies uh, and analysis. I'm not I'm not as convinced as he is that it's as that that our problems with criminal justice are as much racism as they are other things like that. Police like to like to police in poor neighborhoods where they can't lawyer up. And so, of course, they're going to be policing in more poor neighborhoods. And because socioeconomically, uh, blacks as a whole are are higher represented in poorer communities. There's going to be more of that. Um, I think you also have stereotypes that are very harmful, and that's that's part racism, of course. Um, but anyway, he one of the things that uh, Balco does is to make the point that there's a lot of evidence of disproportionality of in, in enforcement and other things and aspects of the criminal justice system that are racist. And I agree with him. But whether you agree with him or not, one of the most important things he says, and this is to me, this has been such a burr under my saddle uh, because I hear constantly about race and I keep thinking, wait a second, a huge portion of this country is not black and they have plenty to fear 
from police and from criminal justice abuse, why are we leaving them out of the concern circle? Wouldn't we want everybody who fears that they could be killed in some mishap involving the police or abused or, or, or brutalized in some way by bad policemen who aren't, you know, who aren't being reined in? Um, that's not just a black problem. That is a black and white and Hispanic and Asian and every other type of person problem. And Balco points that out, that a lot of white people, he says, lots of white people are wrongly accused, arrested and convicted, treated unfairly, beaten and unjustifiably shot and killed by police officers. So that, you know, to me, that's critical because otherwise this becomes all about race. And I think for some white folks, especially if you live in certain parts of the country where there's not many black people living there, if you're living in Idaho or Montana or something, why should you even pay attention? You should pay attention because it's not all about race. It's about a criminal justice system that's broken. And it's not just broken for black folks. It's broken for white folks, too. And that doesn't mean that black folks aren't getting it worse. It just means that if you think you're safe because your wife, your wife, because your your wife might protect you. But in mine, my, you know, anyway, uh, but if you think you're safe because you're white, you're mistaken. The other uh, uh, interesting thing about this and the point we make with unfriending the police is that we have to do things that change the dynamic. And the idea of having some you know, macho revolutionary slogan, does it change behavior or does it not change behavior? And I don't see any evidence that changes behavior. And, and I think we have to keep making the point that if, if the, there's a problem of too much policing, bad policing maybe, but part of it is things like the war on drugs, which has not only enabled, but in, in fact encouraged the police to be much more intrusive, much more aggressive, has given them huge additional powers. The whole RICO thing, uh, civil asset forfeiture, where we turn police into basically folks who go pilfer from people and, and steal their stuff and make it to where, oh, we got some nice things for the for down at the station, uh, but we had to steal it from some people through civil asset forfeiture. Um, it has corrupted the police in the same way that we know during prohibition in the 30s, um, you know, uh, the uh, in the 20s. And, and you had you had police forces all over the country corrupted by the money of the mob because alcohol being illegal, all of a sudden they were big profits in the same way that there are big profits on drugs today. And it is fueling organized crime. So I make the point, stop the drug war. We have to do real things to pull back the police. Um, and it doesn't mean there aren't, there's a, a zillion other reforms. We've talked about qualified immunity and ending it. We've talked about ending civil asset forfeiture. We've talked about uh, getting rules written because we have police cameras all over the country now. And most police forces, I think, have cameras but they don't have any rules. No one's written any rules that require them to wear them, to turn them on. And let me tell you, a camera that's not turned on is not nearly as effective as a camera that is. 
and and to make them release that footage in a in a set legal way that can protect people who are part of that footage that don't don't deserve to be disclosed but also that the public the whole point of having the cameras is when something horrible goes down the public doesn't have to feel like they're not going to ever find out what happened and so they need you know this the, the whole point of having the cameras is to let the people see what the cameras picked up uh, so there's all kinds of things that need to be done but if we think we're just going to do a couple of reforms and not take any major look at what's being policed and what should be policed and what shouldn't then again we're going to miss this you know golden opportunity for reform one of the things that uh, we keep on coming back to is of course when you, when you talk about getting rid of the war on drugs which is one of your themes here which would de-escalate the police is that because of the war on drugs police departments around the country have been militarized and armed even when unnecessary uh, many state troopers you know when the, when we were young didn't have weren't carrying any weapons with them that right. is, they weren't carrying they were there was no sidearms because all they're doing is really enforcing simple road rules but now they're carrying oh, they're all carrying weapons and uh, it makes things it escalates everybody everybody's a little more on edge that way yes Yes, no, it's it, uh, the, the militarization of police, and it, it is in part due to the drug war, you know, uh, but, it, but it's not just that. It's also due to the fact that we've engaged in a couple of conflicts in the Middle East that don't make a lot of sense, and we built a, you know, we've, the military's bought a bunch of hardware, and then it runs, you know, what, what are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to give it free to police forces. Isn't that a nice thing? And everybody loves it. They get something for free. You're making good use of uh, taxpayer resources or whatever. But now you've got police forces with these military vehicles. And there's no way you can put those on the street and be a person living in that town and not feel like you're now under military uh, occupation. And so, you know, it, you, you have to look at some of those optics because they have repercussions. The rest of the week wasn't very much about uh, those issues, though. I mean, you had three in a row that were kind of on the same theme, but then the last two were a little bit different. They were. And I think in many ways, uh, 12 Monkeys in Charge, there a lot of interest on Facebook and other places in this story. And I had actually seen this article, and we talked about it some weeks ago, when it came out that the U.S. had provided funds to a lab in Wuhan, and that that Wuhan lab had it gotten involved with this, uh, um, oh, I'm, what's the phrase, the uh, gain function. Uh, uh, they, they were doing experiments, gain of function experiments. Is that, the, is that the right phrase? Yeah, that's the right phrase. Okay. And, and the right. idea is gain, the gain of function so that it can spread to humans. Right. I mean, that's the function we're talking about. It's kind of a funny way of putting it, isn't it? <laughs> right. And, and in essence, what they're trying to do, and I don't, I don't claim to fully know, understand exactly how they do it all, but is to create these jumps. In other words, create a new virus so that you can practice overcoming that virus and let it mutate in some ways that are really nasty so you can practice getting rid of those nasty mutated viruses. Um, 
there's an obvious little problem sometimes, though, especially if you're doing it at a lab that's not really seriously efficient and careful uh, and accountable and so on and so on. And, and because you're creating these like super duper viruses, if they get out, that's really a bad thing. You've just created kind of a germ warfare agent. And of course, there are folks, and we linked to, to a person discussing one of the doctors, he's a Nobel Prize winner, uh, has been controversial. You know, that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, but, but he says this is a man-made virus, that this, this virus shows some indications that it was made in a laboratory. And, um, and you know, who knows? Right after the thing came out, you know, it was it February or January, really early on in the whole pandemic, uh, there were studies that, you know, assured us it wasn't made in a lab, but they, they had, you know, their theories of why it couldn't have been made in a lab. It would have been unlikely. They didn't say couldn't. They said it would have been unlikely. But this isn't one of these uh, people you linked to, didn't he? Was uh, The Indian uh, doctor say that uh, it looked an awful lot like the AIDS retrovirus? Yes. Yes, I mean there that's some suggestion that that there were parts of that virus in this virus. Now again, uh, you know this is kind of the blind leading the blind because I don't understand enough about you know the viruses and and so on and how they work to really have any real sense of this. But I do have a sense of how politics works, and it it appears and there's there's I've been in some discussions with people who who just who believe that Newsweek, which we we quote here, uh, got this wrong, that the Obama administration did not say you can't send any money, you can't spend money on this, that somehow they were okay with sending the money to China. Of course, it's a slightly different if you send the money to China than if you use it here and and so to, to get out of all the weeds of this, the bottom line is this. Our U.S. taxpayer dollars went to, to uh, a lab in Wuhan that was doing all kinds of, you know, uh, experiments to allow viruses to gain function and be able to be transmitted to human beings. The effort was not to kill a bunch of people. It was to better train and better be better equipped against these viruses. But there's all kinds of people throughout the world who have warned, don't do these things. This is a mistake. You are not helping. You are hurting. And it seems to me, I know that we're all supposed to just listen to the experts, but this is an ethical issue. And it's an issue about our dollars. And it seems to me that the American people should be brought into this discussion because I'm pretty convinced that they would want to be in this discussion and they would want to be able to decide, are we going to be spending money to try to create what could be huge problems? And let's hear why, why shouldn't the American people be informed on both sides of this? What does Fauci say? What do other people say about why you should do this? Because they may have some good arguments. I'm not, I'm not certain that that's not something that should be done, but I'd sure like to know more, especially since they're using my tax dollars. And so this is the sort of thing that the media should be forcing a bigger discussion about this. 
but the media is not forcing bigger discussions. So often, instead of forcing a bigger discussion, they're telling us everything's decided. They're telling us, don't, don't worry your pretty little head about this. The experts have it all under control. That's why the experts will tell you, don't wear a mask. Masks are going to, oh, they're going to have no impact whatsoever. They're not going to help you at all. You're going to see constant commercials, or not commercials, but constant little segments on the TV news explaining from the experts why you don't need to ever wear a mask. And then a few weeks later, those same experts are going to tell us we must have masks and we must wear them. And that's a, that's a little bitty part of how bad the experts have been on this whole coronavirus. But I'll tell you, we, we do not want government by experts. And we do not want anyone, no matter how talented they are medically, to be making what are our ethical and political decisions. Give us the information and let us make the decision. And that, that is something, it's so scary to see that just seems to be drifting away just keeps running away that the whole idea that we should be given information to make decisions as American citizens. No, nobody seems to think that anymore. Instead, we should listen to this expert. Well, not that expert, but this expert over here. This is, uh, this is how republics die. And, and we have to, this isn't just about the coronavirus or just about this one little deal in Wuhan or whatever. This is about whether the American people are in charge of their government. And right now, I submit to you, we're not. And until we are, we are vulnerable. We are in terrible danger. Now, it sounds to me like you're also implying that the media likes it that we're not in charge. That is, the yes. mainstream corporate media doesn't like citizen control government they prefer control by experts it looks like to me and that's... yes well for one it's easier to cover <laughs> if, if, it's, if it's citizen control you got to know what's going on all over the country you got to know what movements what undercurrents are happening in different places if it's ruled by experts you get the press release you ask a couple questions maybe Half the time it seems like they don't, but you should maybe ask a couple of questions to make it look good. And then you publish the story. And if you were wrong, oh, it turns out I was wrong. Well, I asked an expert. I had the official government expert on that. I talked to a congressman. He's official. Um, but they don't talk to the public. They don't. And see, I, I've seen this for years. I've noticed that when it came to issues like term limits, pretty big issue for me and a big issue for the country, that you would see stories where they would be talking to all lobbyists and capital insiders and politicians, none of whom like term limits. And the whole theme of the story would be how unpopular term, term limits were. Right after they had passed by like 75% of the vote, we're being told in newspaper stories that they're unpopular because they haven't talked to any of us. They've only talked to the experts, the political experts, the lobbyist experts, the the academic experts. And um, it's it's a huge problem. And and it's one that we will continue to uh, to bitch and moan about loudly. 
Now, there's one part of that story that I, that's juicy that we don't, I don't know what to make of exactly, but it's the whole Dr. Charles Lieber business that you didn't mention here in our rundown. Yes. And that's a, I mean, he's been indicted, and we don't know what it's going to turn out to be, but he's been indicted for lying about his relationship to Chinese, I mean, he was involved in the Wuhan uh, research. As right. a nanoscientist, that's actually the part that creeps me out, uh, because I'm not so I'm not a Kurzweil fan that thinks you know or you know I'm not a or, or what's that Eric Drexler uh, the the whole nanotechnology being the boon of the future you know whenever there's a boon there can be a but you know, a complete debacle too and I I'm, I'm I'm iffy on this whole boon and debacle business but anyway uh, this Libra story is really an interesting interesting story lurking behind the whole thing. Yes, and uh, I'll tell you the other part of that, the other shoe that, that really isn't part of this story, but it's a part of the broader China story, is that I keep seeing these stories every couple of weeks. This professor who has just been arrested, who didn't tell his relationship with the Chinese government or with some Chinese company that's government owned or so on and so on. And the reach of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party that rules China without any democratic check or balance, um, they, you know, this this whole, I guess, uh, um, you know, their their whole philosophy has been to move into different places and use money, state money, to influence. Uh, we're seeing it all over Australia, where they're dictating to Australian universities what they should or shouldn't do and what people can say. And and we've, we've done numerous commentaries on it. And Australia's got a heck of a problem because there are so many Chinese students and because the Chinese government has got, has has their nose in a whole bunch of things and their fingers in a whole bunch of things and they're funding things. So people who like money, and I haven't ever met anybody who didn't, people who like money tend to want to do the things they tell them to do. Oh, I shouldn't criticize the fact that you have two million people in concentration camps? Well, how much money are you giving me? So that same thing is happening in American uh, uh, academia. And it is related to all kinds of defense uh issues and very sensitive stuff. Uh, China is a big intellectual thief um, and they're a dangerous military force. And we keep seeing again and again and again their reach into the U.S. and into our universities. And, and you know, it's the, it's the kind of thing where it looks like a pretty good reach if they don't have any reach beyond what we've already seen in our newspapers with this guy being arrested because he didn't disclose things or this person being arrested because he was getting Chinese help that he didn't disclose. And then this person, I bet it's a lot deeper than we know yet. So this is, uh, you know, this, it is a big problem. It's a huge problem. And and we've done the, the commentaries and the reporting on, on this too. It's a problem I don't think the media covers the way they should. And partly because the media has been leveraged monetarily by the Chinese regime as well. They have spent what has been reported to be millions of dollars um, 
with advertising in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, so, you know, we, we've got a serious problem. Well, and, and Bloomberg, there was a big story that came out that we uh, uh, did something on a couple of weeks ago where Bloomberg basically came out that they, they had, had, you know, tried to force different people um, to, to do non-disclosure agreements because they didn't want it out that they had completely caved to Chinese pressure and refused to write negative stories about negative things that the Chinese government was doing. So uh, this this is why we've we have spent uh, what I think is a, a lot of time talking about China, uh, because I think it's a huge threat to the world, but also because it 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 just is such a huge corrupting influence in the United States. There are they they are buying off, I think, an awful lot of people in academia, academia. I think they've bought off a few politicians. I think they certainly uh, have their hooks into a lot of business people because the business people are, I want to make money. Well, if you want to make money and you don't care about any any ethics or or, or justice, uh, well, then, you know, you're, you're going to do, you're going to, you're going to play ball with China. It's only when the people of the world start to say, hey, wait a second, we want to live in a free society. We like we like capitalism. We like making money. We like trade. But we don't want trade to lead us to a world in which we can't say what we want to say because the butchers of Beijing have have so much control and so much leverage that they can cripple and bankrupt anybody who speaks up. That's not the world we want. And on that happy note, let's go to the feel-good story of the day, of the week, which is happy Juneteenth. And, um, and I, I, I say that just a, a little tongue-in-cheek because for the most part, um, you know, I'd heard about Juneteenth for a long time. And it, it seems to have been, you know, almost exclusively a black celebration of the end of slavery and the more I've heard about it, the more I think, why is there no celebration of the end of slavery? I mean, slavery is, as I say in, in you know, Friday's commentary, America's original sin. And, you know, we have every reason to be sorry that that sin was ever committed. But there's a there's a rest of the story. And, and I don't get in this commentary to... Jim Crow days or to, you know, the different uh, what's happened after slavery, because, of course, Juneteenth is a is a celebration of the end of slavery. It's not a celebration of everything that every politician in America ever did since the end of slavery. But it's to me, it just seems like such an obvious holiday. And it also seems to me, I think that it's, you know, it's easy for white folks to not want to talk too much about slavery because there's always kind of this like, hey, somehow it's my fault because I'm white or something, which, you know, I wasn't a lot. I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> and, uh, and and of course, I think we also have to say we didn't do anything to stop it because we weren't alive. We weren't there. But as a country, shouldn't we have to deal with the sin? And shouldn't we also deal with the fact that there was some redemption? 
that we ended the sinning and that we abolished slavery and freed slaves. And yes, because both parts of it are reality. Um, and and I, I just think that there, it occurred to me that we're not taking any, we're not doing any of the, hey, and it's not us. It's not about patting ourselves on the bank. We, like I've already said, we didn't have anything to do with it. We were, we were not, you know, we weren't even a gleam in anybody's eye. But as a country, both parts are there. And I don't think we want to spend, you know, I mean, let's not, let's not spend a lot of extra money celebrating the end of slavery. But let's every year, why wouldn't we celebrate Juneteenth? Um, and, and, of course, some people may not realize Juneteenth is, is, the, uh, is the day that Union troops got to Galveston, Texas, which was months after the end of the Civil War, and basically, you know, said, hey, the Civil War is over, slaves are free, they read a proclamation, and so on. Um, so the date of emancipation for most uh, people, enslaved people in the U.S., was before uh, June 19th, but it's become kind of a holiday, and it's and and it's probably one of the latest uh, you know situations for people to be free. So I I just think why not celebrate the end of slavery, make it a holiday. I, I had uh, uh, my brother my brother sent me something today said don't make it a new holiday take Columbus Day or something out. You know, in other words, you have to get rid of one because he's always tired about the, the, the government making you take all these days off. Come on, we have to do some work. So uh, anyway, I'm, I'm not saying that it needs to be a new holiday. I'd be, I'd be fine for, with getting rid of one of the old ones. I just think it's, it's worth celebrating and it's worth remembering that we had the terrible crime of slavery and we ended slavery which itself cost the lives of, you know, between 600 and 800,000 uh, Americans on one side or the other. So, Yeah, my only major concern is that it's just a Galveston thing. I understand that people have sort of lommed on to it, but that's not the moment of anything in a sense, just except it's just Galveston. I mean, Vermont, when it was formed as a state in 1777, made slavery illegal. I right. Mean, I right. mean... I think that almost every state or many of the states could have their own separate end of slavery days. Uh, and I think that would be kind of, that would be kind of cool, in my opinion, is to actually have 50 celebrations. It'd be, I, especially, it'd be especially cool in Vermont, where they could like go, yeah, we were way ahead of everybody. Now they could kind of brag. They've got bragging rights. But, but again, that'd be more history learned, and that'd be good. The truth is good for people to know. And, and, uh, but I don't think it'd be a bad thing if it was a national holiday, because in essence, you could choose June 19th and then and then you could celebrate every state could have their own thing. I mean, you don't have to, you know, it could be an umbrella or it could be every state. The point is, I think so often and I just I saw a thing on TV today about uh, June 19th and uh, and Juneteenth as a holiday. And it was portrayed as all of a, a black holiday. And I guess part of it is, it seems to me this should not be a black holiday, that there, there, there seems to be such an effort to separate us. I, I, I think of, of uh, George Floyd and uh, had a, a friend say to me, um, 
Do you hear about the guy who uh, came out in favor of the policeman, uh, you know, kneeling on his neck for eight minutes? I said, no. He said, that's because nobody did. And I thought, you know, there's there's been such an opportunity for unity on this issue at this time. Some of these other cases, like even the case in Atlanta, I don't think this guy should have been shot. But it's a much different case, a much, you know, it's, it's very messy and, you know, you don't know what was going through different people's minds or exactly what happened. The Floyd thing's totally different. And to me, that's kind of the way I feel about this Juneteenth holiday. I don't want it to be just a black holiday. It should be a holiday for all Americans. And not that we did it, but that our ancestors did something terrible, were involved in something terrible, at least some of them, a lot of them fought it the whole time. As you point out, Vermont and abolitionists who never supported it. But let's learn that history and let's appreciate that with all the terrible, there was something done about it. Because in our lives, there's plenty of problems. The key thing is that we do something about them. I don't mind June, Juneteenth as a celebration. I think it's just that I'd, I'd like to see more of them because slavery is is really, you know, it's something we're all against. I mean, <laughs> it, it's not even that hard of a, an against. You know, this is not something that really should divide anyone. And right. and if you want to go racial on it, it is worth remembering uh, Puddinghead Wilson by Mark Twain, wherein the story was there were two people who looked white and one of them was, and one of them was a slave by nature and by a switched at birth the wrong white person was enslaved and when and when the slaves were freed after the civil war uh many white people had been they just passed into the, in the population they just right. became they, they uh, and that's an interesting it's a different part of the story but there were white people basically white people i mean people you would who looked white who were slaves it's a very odd thing and that's not how it's usually portrayed in you know, in our movies these days, because, of course, that's not the main point of the, the story. I right. mean, I, we all know that. It's just that there were oddities about slavery. Well, there, there were. Well, for instance, there were there were black slave owners. Yes. Uh, and in fact, the original case, I believe one of the one of the people involved as a slave owner was black. Um, but but of course, it you know, it isn't. To say, you know, I don't believe white people are all responsible for what other white people did. So it doesn't really matter to me what race the slaveholder was or the slave was. I mean, I, I want to know. Um, and, I, you know, it'd be kind of stupid to go, oh, was it really black people who were mainly enslaved? I mean, we know that was the case. And we know how people used the fact that they were a different color to be a big thing that meant there weren't really people and so on. And we got to fight all of those and learn about all those and teach our kids about all those things. But it's not, um, but learning that the truth that there were also black slave owners is just the truth. And what it says is it isn't all about race. There's nothing about being white that makes you evil. There's nothing about being black that makes you evil. There's nothing about being Hispanic or Asian or anything else that makes you wonderful or evil. People are people. And, you know, so so it, it again, the more we know, it seems to me, the better it is and the more we would tend to be unified. 
But no one in the political game has much of an interest in people being unified. Some people, and they seem to be somewhat in the media as well as elsewhere, really want to divide Americans right now on the, on this, these issues. Yes. Uh, it's kind of amusing. You, I mean, the funniest thing of last week, I think, was probably the pretentious and almost up Chuckworthy moment when the Democratic leaders knelt was it in, in, yeah. knelt yeah. The, the floor of Capitol uh, on the Capitol and uh, with their special African sashes and uh, and then of course you heard about the upshot from that right wasn't it that somehow the sashes were worn by you yeah. know slave traders or something well yeah but you know because it's like the worst thing you could possibly wear most of the people who enslaved africans and sold them to the portuguese and the the white slave traders that brought them to americas were other black people i mean it was africans enslaving africans selling them to europeans to get to america that's that is what happened and the tribe that had those wonderful Wonderful, lovely colors, and I, I must say, say I really do like their colors. I think they're great, uh, and I can I understand why Nancy Pelosi wants to wear those colors. She needs all the help she can get in the uh, threads department. But uh, it was kind of amusing that they had somehow blundered into a complexity of history. Uh, in fact, that's almost what America is always doing: is blundering into the complexities of history. You're going to do that when there is a purposeful attempt to not get into any details. I mean, I have, when I first got to Washington, this is many years ago, um, I can remember people would say, you know, as if it was wisdom from on high, that you can't transmit complex messages. You know, we're here, we are, we've got term limits. Of course, there weren't weren't any terribly complex messages. Everybody got all of them pretty, pretty easily. But on different issues, you know, you're, you have to be careful because you don't want to make it too complicated because the American people somehow couldn't couldn't understand it if it was too complicated. And I quickly came to the conclusion that the problem was not the American people's inability to understand complex messages, because they, for a large part, could understand very complex messages. The problem was getting the media to carry your complex message to the people without screwing it up. And, uh, and that's very, very difficult. So uh, I think that's kind of appropriate here because the media is not interested in an informed electorate. And I say that just because constantly I read stories, I see things on TV, and I realize if I know anything about it that they've left huge areas out, important facts out important opinions on the other side of whatever network, whether it's Fox or MSNBC or ABC or whatever, um, they always leave the other side's arguments out. And in fact, the only time they bring them in is when they misrepresent them and use them as straw men to beat up, you know, where they pull out one comment, misrepresent it, and then beat up from there. But all of that, all of, uh, I just constantly see them wanting to tell us what we should think about what has happened, but very scant on the details about what has actually happened, as if they can't trust us to come to the right conclusion. So they're not sure which bits of information they should give us. Well, at this point, (laughs) they're not providing a service. 
they are using their reach to try to brainwash us, to tell us only what they want us to know. And of course, you know, I, I don't want to, I, I don't think that there are, you know, late night and early morning meetings where they burn in incense and, and, you know, whisper the secret codes that they're all going to do this. But the media is run by people who are on the left, not on the moderate left. As we have said numerous times, I think the lion's share of the mainstream media is to the left of the left of the Democratic Party. And so, you know, they think alike in the same way that uh, I did something on Juneteenth saying, hey, bring it on. Sounds like a great holiday. And Reason had something today. I put my I, I went to the, the Facebook and put something on my page with mine. And then I saw something from Reason. They had the exact same take on it. Now, I didn't crib what they did. They didn't crib what I did. We didn't talk to each other. Why did we have the same take? Because we had the same political philosophy and we saw something and we had the same take. That happens all the time in the mainstream media. And in fact, if that's why last week's story about the New York Times and getting rid of an op-ed page editor, this the, the guy who put uh, Tom Cotton's op-ed in is gone. And he's gone not because the public revolted, but because the New York Times newsroom reported. The people reporting the news at the New York Times did not like Tom Cotton's opinion and do not want an opinion they don't like like that to be in their newspaper. That's a, that's a whole different world. And it, it shows how dangerous it is in this current environment where you're going to get only narratives from the media. And, and that's true at, uh, at Fox. You know, Fox is going to, it's just, it's nice to have somebody on that side. Because as I pointed out to people, I don't think you can be a well-rounded uh, reader and, and somebody who's interested in current events and not go to Fox News. Because there's all these stories that only Fox News will cover. I mean, you would know almost nothing about the IRS scandal from years ago if you just watched MSNBC and CNN and the, the ABC, CBS, NBC network. They didn't cover it at all. And, and of course, there are things that Fox News isn't going to cover that you're going to have to go to the other ones for. Uh, that's because of all of these narratives taking over from any sort of you know, provision of, of actual news from an objective standpoint. And, you know, I question whether the media could ever be objective. And there's some point I which, uh, at which I think you're better off with a media that is partisan, but then you would want the media to be openly partisan. In other words, we're a democratic newspaper. We're a, we're a liberal or progressive TV station. We're a conservative, we're a libertarian, and, and they don't do that. They all pretend to be objective while they're loading up their you know, partisan vitriol and uh, dumping it on us. Well, you know, in the old days, when before we were born, <laughs> all the major newspapers were basically named, um, you, could, you could tell what the affiliations yes. were. Yes. Or often yeah, you, you could, often you could. And yes. certainly in the days of the early days of the newspaper, Jefferson's times, they were, there was a Federalist 
newspaper or a Democratic Republican newspaper, and that was it. Uh, I think I think when I think of nasty media, you think of Jefferson's time, and then I think of our time being similar to that. But the big difference being they were openly on this side or that side. They openly stated where their politics was, whereas our media totally pretends that they're objective and has no political view whatsoever, which I don't know how anybody watching for three seconds could believe that. You have been listening to Paul Jacob talk about the big stories that appeared this week at thisiscommonsense.org. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at, at Workman on social media. That's Workman with an I, not an O. And this podcast, This Week in Common Sense, can be found on SoundCloud and via podcatchers such as Apple, Google, and Stitcher. You can also find it on YouTube. Thank you.